I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode features two guests. I'm I'm really excited. Uh, you probably have already clicked on the title, but we're going to talk about Donald Ross today. Uh, do our you know what you need to know about Donald Ross uh, podcast? We've done other architects in the past, Perry Maxwell, Walter Travis, um, and uh, we'll continue to do this series uh, as we go on. Was excited to talk to two um, very very qualified guests uh, who are extremely knowledgeable on the subject matter. We had Bradley Klein come on. Bradley uh, wrote a book called Discovering Donald Ross. So he'll be up first. Um, we we talk really about the architecture, the nuts and bolts of uh, Donald Ross's golf courses. And then also, I was joined by Chris Bowie, who uh, wrote a book called The Life and Times of Donald Ross. So we kind of talked more about Donald Ross's life. Um, as he put it, he was really a renaissance man, a genius. I think everybody talks about it, but the business side of what he built in uh, golf architecture is just truly amazing. It's, it hasn't been replicated, and uh, I don't think we'll ever see a, a as prolific of a golf designer as Donald Ross ever, um, especially especially when you consider the quality of golf courses on top of how many he was building at, a, at the peak of his heyday. So a fun question that I asked uh, Bradley and Chris was your five favorite Donald Ross courses. So I figured I, I would do that also. Um, I'll do that here at the intro. Um, you missed the banter a little bit, but um, this was, this was fun. It was fun to think through and, and, this is in no particular order. It's a super hard exercise. I think the thing that when I started to do this, I realized how many Donald Ross courses I had played, how many wonderful Donald Ross courses there are. Um, you know, in terms of like, this is my favorite. It's not what I think the best ones are. It's just the ones that I've had. Um, you know, some of these are personal memories. Some of them are, I just really enjoy the golf course. Um, and it's a mix of that. But I also kind of, realize like you know donald ross had some you know formative uh impact in my golf life uh you know from from my my childhood even so kicking off my five favorite uh donald ross courses we've got franklin hills so franklin hills is a uh not the most famous uh donald ross golf course in detroit that would go to oakland hills south oakland hills south their restoration is phenomenal but franklin hills really falls into the bucket of like fun Donald Ross golf course, wonderful piece of land, some really unique, cool holes, um, some stunning landforms on the golf course. It's just a really fun golf course to play. I know Andrew Green is doing some work there. I'm excited to see it come out of that. But before even the work, one of my favorite Donald Ross courses that I have ever played. Uh, the next one's Beverly. 
this one's near and dear to my heart. Uh, my cousin got married there uh, when I was when I was really young. I was I was in high school at that time, caddying. Um, and I remembered, you know, being at the wedding, looking out and thinking, God, I really would like to play here. Fast forward a few years. I played a state am there, played really well. Um, you always have great memories of a golf course that you played well in competition. Um, that year I played played well in the state am and, you know, you played play the course. I played five rounds over four days and you just grow to appreciate it. Always helps when you play well at it. But then having seen the work that Tyler Ray he's, and uh, Ron Pritchard uh, did over there, they really took that golf course to the next level. And um, it is is one of the best in Chicago. It would be in my my top five of Chicago golf courses as well. Um, really fun piece of land. Uh, there's some elevation, which is rare in Chicago. On the front nine, you kind of tee off down into a uh, into the old lake floor. Um, then you come back out, and the back nine set in what used to be sand dunes next to the lake. So really good topography, uh, which is a rarity in Chicago um, and unique. So uh, I really love uh, Beverly. Uh, another one, a sentimental one, Lulu Country Club uh, in Philadelphia. So Lulu, my uncle. Uh, was the head pro at for a number of years and, uh, you know, played there when I was when I was young. And and just what I love about Lulu, it's early and Brad and I talk a little bit about this uh, aspect of Ross's architecture. It was early in his career. There's a lot of like quirky, weird stuff at Lulu. And I really, really love it. Um, you know, there's there's just some fun holes, the, the short little volcano hole, the punch bowl. You know, I think they've been doing some some good improvements over there. I'd love for, to see that golf course brought back to its full powers because it's it's not you know by no means is you know from site from the site it's on it's not the most stunning site it's not the you know toughest championship test like you know it's not Aronimake but what it is is a full of like quirky holes and fun golf holes and uh, if they ever got that all the way back. It would be something else. Uh, Another one on my list. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking about this now. They're all kind of like neighbors of the famous places. Three, three of the three of the five are neighbors of the famous uh, Ross courses. Uh, Next one, Mid Pines. So Mid Pines, obviously right near Pinehurst number two. I love Pinehurst number two also, but Mid Pines is just so fun. Um, I love the routing, the way it kind of weaves you back and forth. I love you know, it's a little bit more dramatic piece of property than than Pinehurst number two. And it's just a fun place to play. It, it, the the intimacy of Mid Pines is really what what sets it apart. I, I really like that golf course. Haven't been back to the Sandhills uh, of North Carolina in a while. I'm like itching for a trip. I think we might try and go in the fall. So that is on my uh, my list of places to to go back to. Uh, finally, the fifth, but not, uh, not, you know, it's not really fifth. It, I don't know where it would be on my favorites. It'd be near the top of my favorites if, you know, and what I think is the best Essex County club in, in Massachusetts and, uh, Manchester by the sea. The, the team there is just phenomenal. They've done an amazing job bringing back their Donald Ross course and presenting it and just an outstanding fashion. Eric Richardson, the superintendent there is out of this world. Jack Davis, the head pro, great head pro. Um, and they do just a wonderful job being stewards of a, and the club deserves credit too, being stewards of one of the most 
historic golf courses uh, in the country. And a course that Donald Ross lived at and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time at. It is uh, it's phenomenal. I love Essex County um, and uh, it's just so fun. There's, uh, you know, it, there are some holes that traverse some, you know, rather boring land. But there are <laughs> there's a lot of really funky, cool stuff, fun, tough stuff. I mean, there's a mixture of, of uh, really fun holes, really exacting shots. I love Essex County. Uh, that's my five favorite. If you ask me tomorrow, it might be different, but that's it today. This is not a shot of, at at at, uh, at Seminole or um, Oakland Hills or any of the other great ones. These are just my favorites. So if I was going to do what I think the five or ten best Donald Ross courses are, I think those would be right at the top. You know, with Pinehurst number two. But these are just the ones that you know I I have the you know, for personal and, uh, and just fun aspect, you know, the deepest connection to. So without further ado, here is Bradley Klein and Chris Booyah. All right, Brad, to start things off, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of get into the, the nitty gritty of the design stuff with Donald Ross. And, um, what would you describe as the strengths of, uh, of Donald Ross's architecture? There are two obvious strengths, and they, they, they stand out with any of the courses that he spent time. One is the routing, the sequence of um, the T fairway green connection to the next T fairway green and how they fit into the land. And I don't think there was anyone better at making holds sit naturally on site to minimize uh, earth movement. So the routing in terms of fitting, he could fit 18 holes into 94 acres, uh, as he did at Wanamoisa, he could fit him into squares, he could fit him into corners. It's amazing the way his holds work together. So that's the one standout genius. The other thing is when he spent time, which was not always the case, uh, and when, you know, it's 100 years later in many courses, this, the quality of the greens, the shaping, the way in which he created, he really was building T platforms and uh, and greens, and then he built his bunkers into the slopes that were there. So he spent, as all architects did in those days, you know, you had 130 acres site. You're only manipulating three, four acres of land. Basically, it was the greens. So if you th- uh, he would create fill pads by essentially having the laborers or uh, giraffe animals move dirt from behind to build up a platform and it sat there and he built up the, f- the front was usually tied into the grade bunkers are at the base of the fill pad on the side or coming in a little bit. And then the back would often fall off. And one of the great telltale signs of that is you go to any good Ross course and you can tell by walking to the back of the green and looking, there's a fall off. That's where the material came from to build up the platform. And so what he did then is he shaped the green so that the, the in those days you were building for surface contour, uh, surface uh, drainage as well. So uh, modest slopes and the greens often rolled off in two, three, four directions. He wasn't draining everything uh, back to front. He would get the water off on the sides. He was enough of an agronomist to know that if all the water came off the front, it would be sopping wet and you couldn't play the ground game. So in a really good Ross course, you can see how the the, the, the water flows off and that's where the ball goes. So, you know, it's just, when you're reading a green, it's uh, uh you just you, you if you were water where would you go that's what i always tell people 
the new caddies, anybody. You want to read a green. If you were water, where would you flow? And Ross made it flow out so that it just worked with these beautiful soft shapes, not abrupt decks, not a, you know, certainly nothing flat. And um, they worked. And so you look at the combination of the routing sequence and then the, the contours of the greens. And that's, you know, 90% of, of his skill, I think. Well, let's, dig into the routing stuff a, a little bit more obviously he he built hundreds of golf courses how was how did he um conceive his routings and what was the process like that where he did it at such a large scale how did he do so many of them so quickly what what was his kind of process when he was really you know obviously there are different stages in his career and we'll we'll get to that but how was he able to you know efficiently and masterfully route so many golf courses. Well, you know, uh, when we watch Oak Hill, Oak Hill is going to be on the uh, TV in a couple of weeks for the PGA. And that's a great example of a brilliant routing where the greens are organized uh, on high points, what they call the glacial moraine. Seminole is exactly the same thing. Seminole down in Florida is organized around clusters of high points where the greens converge. And so he found high points for the approach into the green and then for the next tee. And then on the other side, he'd have another green and a tee formation. And so he clustered his um, routing in that way. So there, there, there would be these focal points of convergence and then dispersion out. Um, how he did that for a guy who didn't have any formal, for a guy who didn't have any formal training is amazing, but he learned, I suspect from watching old Tom Morris a little bit, or just, you know, a skill of walking a site, he had a topo. Um, he he could read a topo. He could work off of it, and he would very efficiently. I wouldn't say that he worked fast. I'd say he worked efficiently because he would be out there for two days and basically stake a routing, and then sketch the the character of the hole, and then he would hand it over to his engineer Walter Irving Johnson, and then they would hand it over to Walter Hatch and J.B. McGovern to actually build. But to be fair, you know, let's say 410 courses are credited credited to Ross over his 50-year career, 45-year career. Um, so he's doing, let's roughly say, eight courses a year, but it's clustered. In the 20s, he was doing a lot. You know, in the, in the, in the 1920s, he was doing 25 courses a year, renovation, expansion, nine-hole, or original. He was very efficient in just being able to spend two days on site, get it down and move on. I have, when I wrote his biography, I had his telegrams and his record of travel and he already planned out two days, Rochester, two days, he'd moved down to Buffalo. Then he's in Cleveland. Then he's in Chicago. Then he's home. So he kind of knew, uh, he had a topo in his hand. He could figure out very quickly. He staked it. And then he often didn't come back. So the odd thing, you know, people always say uh, modern architects, you know, they weren't spending a lot of time. Uh, well, Ross, 410 courses. Actually, I kind of calculated maybe a third of them he never even saw. He could route it off of a topo at his office. Tom Doe can do that too, by the way. That's mm -hmm. how he routed Sabonic. So uh, when you're skilled enough to read a topo map, now the difference is today topo maps are one foot, two foot contours, and Ross is there. They were five foot contours. So that's harder to get the details right. But it's high point to high point. And then the low points are the transition zone. So you route it that way. And uh, Mackenzie did the same thing. Augusta National is high point over low to high, you know, T fairway green. And Ross did that 
uh, I would say, as efficiently as anybody. So he was kind of the uh, the Henry Ford of his day, in, in in a good way. I think like something that that comes about with these uh, with the golden age architects is everybody loves to talk about how natural all of them were. You know, oh, Donald Ross he had the most natural designs. Mackenzie, uh, you know, he used the land so masterfully. William Flynn, you know, same thing. Well, the reality is they had to. They couldn't move Earth to a large degree. You were just talking about the greens and how they might be able to work on three acres of, of, of land on a 120-acre site, right? So they, they had to maximize the natural features, and I think that's a, a common characteristic you see, as you were just talking about with routing with high points. Like, everybody understands Augusta National. Um, you know, you have these clusters of energy, and that's because they're the greens are situated around similar land, you know, around singular land features across the site, you know, and, and I think that's obviously something you see at Oak Hill and you'll see kind of a nice cadence of it at Oak Hill where you have, you know, two and, and 13 or two and 12 green come together on the right. same hill, three greens right there. You know, that's a great little focal point. Then you have 18 and, you know, and uh, 14 and 15 right there all all really close together so it is something you know i think like you know we every every golden age architect is in a way natural because they had to be natural that's true the other because nobody was taking a dozer and and blowing up a hill they might have been shaping and shading a little bit you know a foot here maybe but unlikely they were just you know like you say so one of the advantages that the old architects had is they weren't worried about regulatory process. They could put green sites right on a creek. They could put it in a bog and drain it. There wasn't an environmental concern about wetlands. So they had a tremendous flexibility, and they're totally different conditions than modern architects have. And they had the ability to scoot down the road to another parcel of 120, 30 acres if the, the one they were looking at first didn't work out. So they had a lot more flexibility. They had a lot more... Uh, potential, but they were also creating contiguous 18-hole properties together, unencumbered by real estate, and that uh, worked really well. And in those days, you didn't have golf carts, so you had to make it walkable. You had to have a nice, tight connection. You know, you see on, on rainer courses, they have these walk-off ramps from green to tea. It's like, you know, let's just go right through there. So the combination of the skill set, the conditions that they worked under, and their ability frankly, to read a topo map uh, and learn how to work high point to high point gave them a tremendous advantage that the modern architects don't have. Modern architects, first of all, they have to justify everything. It's all paper driven. They got to go through 29 regulatory meetings. They got $2 million worth of legal fees to pay a, some environmental attorney just to get a permit. And then so you're stuck. You know, you can't, If you move a boundary today, 22 feet, they'll shut you down for a month. Whereas uh, the conditions of construction were much more uh, flexible in those days. So, and, and, and the result is we see these courses that, that sit on, on, on nature more, gent- more gently. Uh, and because they never thought of blowing up a hill for visibility, it's, it's, you, know, you just sat it there, you put the bunkers in the upslope. And, um, and you know, that's the other reason that bunker variability was so great. So many modern architects in the 70s and 80s started reverting to this you know, a bunker pattern left and right at 262 off the tee, 267 off the tee. Uh, but Ross and all those guys, they put it where it was visible. It might have been 110 yards off the tee. It might have been 
160, wherever you could set it at the base of an upslope, there is your visibility. So the variety that resulted, I think, was much more imaginative and creative. And that's why these courses still still continue to thrill. Yeah, I think I think you hit on it uh, on the head there. Like the natural aspect, I think it makes them so unique is because it's always how you're traversing a different, you know, no landform, no no site is similar. So it, it just generally makes them unique. And in the lack of ability to move Earth, what you were talking about, you know, knocking down a landform in order to make stuff visible. Something that I had a discussion with um, just, you know, one night with Garrett while we were in Augusta was like, what is there a great golf course that that doesn't have a lot of obstructed views, even like some blindness, but then a lot of partial blindness. Like, I can't think of a great golf course that doesn't have a considerable amount of of blind nature to it where you have you you're. At the bare minimum, you have a lot of obstructed, whether it was tee shots, semi-blind or approach shots. Like, you know, that's it's hard to think of a, a great course that doesn't feature a, a considerable amount of blindness. And, and a lot of the blindness just comes from landforms and golden age golf courses that they couldn't move. They're too big that they have to go over. Well, and the other thing is they've evolved because the tees have been pushed back now more. But mm -hmm. there's something wonderful about hitting a tee shot kind of, oh, where did it wind up? I'm not quite sure. Uh, so uh, There's a thrill uh, of way, going to... over that hill. You know, there's it's like the anticipation of walking over and seeing where a shot went. Yeah, that's the great thrill. By the way, I have to tell you, this is a real buzzkill. But we were uh, recently, I was involved in a restoration project and we created a massive cross bunker and it sort of obstructed the landing zone. So I pointed out to them that they've got GPS and geofencing. So you you know by looking at your cart where the people are anyway, so you're not going to hit into them. So you can actually <laughs> go back to blind shots now thanks to thanks to the visage system. So, you know, part of a retro movement there. I was, I was I, at I, Riviera I last week and they had a TV screen left of 18. <laughs> it's like I, I like didn't realize. I was like, oh, my God, the TV's for the blind shot. Yeah, well, you know, Riviera would have TV. Everyone else would have just a mirror with a sailor's kind of thing. But I, my favorite is the periscope. Right. Nothing beats oh, yeah. the periscope. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> the the captain is sitting there. It's like a relic out of World War II. But I agree with you. That thrill of anticipation. You know, you nailed it, or you maybe you didn't quite catch it. Did it, did it get the downslope? You know, you wouldn't want eighteen. You wouldn't want sixteen or fifteen of those shots. But having four or five of them, I think it's really cool. Um, particularly on tee shots where you're not going to move a hill. That's the other thing. You're not going to blow up a hill, although some people do, for this, and, and create that kind of you know symmetrical saddle down the middle of visibility. It's just awful. Um, all right. So we, we've talked about a lot of positives with Ross. What would you say were his weaknesses? Yeah. So his par fives. Uh, <laughs> You know, if you look on a map of uh, all these holes, his par fives. First of all, he didn't designate par on his on a routing. He had a yardage. So, well, I, th I think this is something I, I was reading a book. I, I was reading uh, some Mackenzie writing. It is in Josh Pettis' Mackenzie Reader. It's a beautiful book. But I was reading. Um, it's just interesting how they they deem them long holes and short holes. A lot of architects. It wasn't a par five, a par four, and it makes it a lot more clear when it just long holes, short holes. Well, yeah. Uh, and it, because he didn't designate par and it was in, you know, process of evolution. But I, I would have to say that a lot of his 
so-called par fives ended up by the 1970s being very short. He built a lot of 480s, 460s. You rarely see a Ross hole that's 550, 570 from his plan. And so that becomes, becomes a little redundant, I think. Um, now, characteristically, what's interesting about Ross is that he also was not afraid to build 240, 230-yard par threes in those days, which was a full bus driver and then some. You know, you think of Worcester's fourth hole, for example, uh, comes right to mind, or uh, Brayburn's 17th, uh, and, and here at Wampanoag, the um, uh, 13th, uh, he did that a lot. There's a lot of long part, uh, Scioto, the, yeah. the 14th hole at Scioto, 220 uphill. Yeah, it's a great well, hole. Now, it's, now yeah. it's like 280 from the back tee. Well, but that's because 220 now, yeah. then is 280 now, so it's, you know, <laughs> but... uh. With cross bunkers, but um, so I, I the so the one thing I would say is that I think two things: uh, the short fives become a little bit problematic unless you can grab yardage, or they end up being long force. The other one is that his turn points pretty much were two hundred yards. If he had a chance to turn it in an open field, and a lot of times those dog legs now don't work as well because you're hitting it through. Uh, or you have to hit it over, turn it over, or with a, a layup club. So, I'd say there's a little bit of um, re- limitation there, if you will. But having said that, you know he was great at building a 135 yard par three surrounded by bunkers, like the, the third hole of Wanamoisit, for example. Uh, he 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 always built that with a little thumbprint in the front. To, uh, to, so, I would say his variety was actually greatest on the par threes. And uh, he wasn't building a lot of long fours because they would shade into fives. So, you know, a little bit of a limitation there. But his green contours all were different. And I'm always amazed at how complex. But I always love the ones with a little bit of a thumbprint in the front part three or the, the sort of catcher's mitt. It's almost like a Langford Moreau deal, left and right, with a little ridge down the middle to divide the, uh, the sectors so that it was hard to get across. Skokie is filled with that. Of course, Skokie is both Ross and Langford Moreau anyway. But um, um, I'd have to say not a lot of criticism other than the fives. Yeah. Know, if you want to you want to be picky about it. I uh, love the, the real problem. I, let me just finish. The real yeah. problem with Ross courses is that half the ones you're looking at have been so altered, so treated over. The greens reduced to circles. Uh, the fairways straightened out. So you, what what. A lot of people experience as Ross is not is no longer Ross. So that's the, the benefit of all the great restoration. We're showing people what a real Ross course now looks like as opposed to how it had devolved. I, that was something I wanted to touch on here. I mean, it, with the restoration boom that we're currently in, what what do you think has has been been something that's been illuminated about Ross that might have earlier been a misconception? Oh, the offset bunkering. Uh, he was a master at cross bunkers at 110, uh, diagonal second shot. So, we're the, we, and then you can carry that bunker and there's fairway beyond. We've lo- we'd lost a lot of that over the years by the trees that grew in. And so, uh, the other thing that's that changed a lot with the restoration um, is that the bunker style of reconstruction in the 60s, 70s, 80s was heavy dozer stuff with a lot of bulk material on the outside. 
And when you bulk up a bunker on the outside, you lose the perspective of the elevated fill pad because now you're looking at something where the, the highest point is actually beyond the green surface. So the restoration has stripped everything down. Ross, like the great architects like Flynn and Rayner and McDonald and McKenzie, they built everything down. They shaped off on the side and they allowed things to stand up. The bulldozer era and drainage and the you know the, the notion of bunkers at 260, 270 in a formula ended up, they, if they had to, they'd raise the bunkers to get drainage. They'd shape on the outside. And we lost all of that visual drama of the elevated fill pad and the fall-offs in the round surrounding. And we've, we're regaining that now with restoration. Restoration has taken everything down on the outside and highlighting the, the, the shapes in. You see that with Sciota, for example, very clearly, or Congressional as well. I think, uh, you know, something that uh, uh, you just hit on, too, like that gets a little bit um, forgotten when you get the homogenous bunker right, bunker left at 260, is the randomness of bunkers at different yardages impact different players, but then also in different conditions, you could find yourself in, in bunkers that you usually don't even look at, you know, if you're playing into a strong wind randomness in bunkers is, is a wonderful thing because like, I think something that gets lost a lot of times with the playability boom, the idea of like, we need to make courses playable. Like one of the great features of golf is the thrill. And if you just remove all the hazards from a lower trajectory, shorter hitter, you're 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 taking away the pure essence of the game. That that's what it is. It's about conquering hazards. And and yes, do you need to make it a little bit more friendly and playable for certain types of players? Yes, but you can't just completely remove the idea of challenge from there from the game. And then also like what everybody always talks about with the old course is like you look at a bunker one day and you think, why is that bunker there? And then the next day you're in it. You know, that is a really great feature. And and that happens with, with different weather conditions. You know, if you're playing in a in 50 degrees with a 20 mile an hour wind, you know, you that all of a sudden these bunkers are more relevant. Or if you know, I think one of the the things that's happened with golf, obviously, is everybody plays the same tees all the same time. If you actually play different tees, different bunkers become more relevant for you. So I, I think that's one of the lessons of Lynx golf that the old guys, particularly Ross, you know, you, you, the classic example is Muirfield on the uh, the par five fifth hole, where there are these bunkers. At, there's there's bunkers at two ten, and there's another bunkers on the left at three forty. And you think, uh, what are they doing there? Well, you play into a one win one day, you can't get over the first bunker, and this next day you can you can drive it into the second set. So they you, you learn that from from them. It's interesting. I I do agree with you about the um, the um, the worst the worst thing that's probably happened to golf architecture. Well, one of the things that's limiting the appreciation of golf architecture is betting because people play to the handicap from a set of tees assigned by the pro. So I have a rule. I've been very involved in course consulting and restoration. And my what I tell people is you know you you don't allow anyone to complain about the restored golf course until they've played from a forward set of tees than they normally play. Get it, the experience of all that dis, different strategy, and <laughs> then the whole thing changes. You know, it's harder on an, an inland American course where it's protected by trees. You don't get quite the weather variability. But when you take down the trees and you open up the site and the wind comes up, all hell breaks loose one day, and the next day it's perfectly calm. So I agree with you. The playing from a ver variety of set of tees, uh, 
And also, you know, just going out there with seven clubs and just hitting shots rather than worrying about what you're scoring. That's the best way to understand architecture. I thought I had to chuckle when you said the, the idea of uh, the trees and everything. And, and something I found uh, that brought me humor is obviously we're doing this podcast uh, in, in the lead up of Oak Hill is the idea that Dal Ross went out to Oak Hill, approved of the site, and then the club planted 30,000 plus trees on the site. There's a book. When I was writing the Ross book, I discovered a book about the history of Oak Hill. It's entirely about the trees. There's no reference to any golf hole on the whole golf course. So, you know, that now I give them credit because they, Oak Hill, but though, you know, the, the, whole, the, the hill of fame with all the oak trees and all that, they cut some of those down. They took out a lot. They Might lost. The, enough, they lost they, Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino's tree. They had to. They had to move right? their plaques. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that lost... was a big, a big. It was that was the those were maybe the two hardest trees to lose during the restoration. Well, when I I used to I had a photograph of the 14th hole, the short uphill drivable, sort of drivable. Now it's drivable, par four, and there was a leaning tree. There was sugar maple protecting the left green side, the left fairway bunker. And when Latshaw was there, Junior, Paul Junior was there, I kept asking him, is that tree out of there? Is that tree out of there? No, no they, they, they couldn't get, they finally got it out of there. The other one they got is that leaner on 12 that was sitting on a, uh, you know, was braced at about 45 degree angle. So I give them credit. They, they finally opened up that place so that you can see the landforms and see the fantastic settings and the routing and the short grass uh, roll-offs that Andrew uh, Green introduced. Um, all right. Uh, oh, there's a lot of talk about, uh, Ross evolution and his architecture evolving. How would you characterize that evolution from the, you know, 1910s to the 1920s, to the 1930s. And I mean, he was designing courses post-depression even. There, there are, there are, I don't know if it's distinct phases, but there are discernible phases, uh, phases. So his first 10, 12, 15 years as a designer, you know, it starts with Oakley and then uh, Rhode Island Country Club is a pretty early one, for example. Um, uh, there's a, a randomness. There's a lot of mounding. There's a lot of arbitrary stuff. The big change for him was hiring Walter Irving Johnson as a civil engineer in October 1920. And then all of a sudden, his sketches were loose. Then they go to a blueprint. Walter Irving Johnson converts them into construction plans, and that's when the mass production starts. And so then there's a more strategic approach, um, a little bit less randomness, a little bit less arbitrary mounding and cross-bunkering. Uh, and then in the 30s, with the advent of steel shafts and the sand wedge and economics and economy and Tillinghast gutting every golf course that he looked at, or, or trying to gut every golf course he looked at. That's a whole other podcast, by the way. Uh, yes. Most of it is nonsense. Um, but um, it might have been an era the, of justifying your role. Desperately so, yes. Yeah. Um, so in the, tw in, in the 30s, when, when he had very little work, whatever he did, and then the few courses he did post-war, you know, Raleigh Country Club, for example, or the routing plan for Hartford Golf Club, that's a much simpler strategic orientation where you have maybe one bunker on the inside of a dog leg, one or two at the green. He, he really stripped it down to a more uh, uh, efficient 
I dare say, modern approach. So I would say there, there are three phases. There's the Essex County Club, where the, all hell breaks loose everywhere. Then there's the, the kind of the mature, dramatic, very bold. And then there's a stripped down, um, much more economical approach uh, after the mid-depression. But because he wasn't doing very many courses, you know, of the 410 courses that Ross did, maybe 15 of them fit into that last phase. So it's not as evident. But you see it in the plans. It's funny, I you know, as you describe them, you know, and I think about the different periods and the different Rosses that are that are my favorite. A lot of them fall into that early, early bucket of experimentation. The there's like a quirky playfulness to them that, you know, you have mounds all over this, a lot of irregular stuff. And it makes sense when you think about, as you describe, kind of the evolution he hires a civil engineer and it becomes kind of a little bit more mass production. And you that's the stuff that you lose is a little bit of that handcrafted, um, you know, uh, just playful architecture that's super evident. Like I think about a place like Lulu Country Club in, in Pennsylvania, an earlier Ross design that's got just a lot of quirky things like a lot of there's a lot of, uh, you know, hummock fields. There's the volcano green. There's a punch bowl. Like, it's just a quirky, weird place. Um, and then, you know, you made the comp a comparison of, of Scioto and Oak Hill. It is unbelievable how different those two courses are. I visited them on back-to-back -back days, basically. And, you know, I, I was blown away by Scioto because of how it's this championship course that retains some element of really fun in it. And, you know, what's really interesting is when you watch Ross go back to his own courses, the difference in Wanamoiset between the 19, I think 1919 PGA and the 31 PGA. And you can see his plans overlaying and moving and stretching and pushing bunkers back into more strategic positions. He did it himself uh, in a fairly thoughtful way, actually. So um, I think that that makes it more interesting because then it's a question of well, who was involved here. Who was building it? How much control did they have? Um, and that gives you that variety. So yeah. What are uh, what are I had you prepare this? Uh, what are your five favorite Donald Ross courses? This is such a tough question. I was kind of right. racking no, through my question. racking through my head to figure out what my favorites were, and I, I'd love to. As somebody who's visited almost, I think almost all of them, um, a, a good portion of them, um, a lot of enough the, of them. Yeah, yeah. And and obviously written quite a bit about them, so I I would love to hear your five favorite. Okay, first is Tiyujika. I've always I wanted. I, I'm so up? I'm so mad. I was driving. I just didn't have enough time. We were going through upstate New York last year, and I didn't. There was like I had this list of like twenty courses I wanted to see in three days, and I was trying to slot in, and and a lot of the time needed to be devoted to Oak Hill, unfortunately. Okay, so Tiyujika, first of all, the great thing about Tiyujika is they never had any money, and so they didn't screw anything up. All they did was plant a lot of pine trees, and they've taken them out. So Tiyujika is in Rome, New York. It's about 40 miles, I don't know, 30 miles east of Syracuse, so it's 100 miles from Rochester. It's worth going to. It's an untouched 1922 Ross course. He spent a lot of time there. Uh, he was widowed at the time. He hung out. He had a girlfriend in town. He handshaped everything. It's all there. It's perfect. I tell all the architects who are doing restoration, I said, go look at Tiyujika. That's my first. Second one is Whitensville. Nine-hole golf course south of Worcester, uh, virtually untouched. 
I was involved with Gil Hands in a restoration, but all we did was modify, actually, um, fairway and surround lines, grassing lines, rebuilt a couple of bunkers. So to you, uh, Whitensville, it's a nine hole. Uh, it's in the top hundred uh, and it's in the top part. It's a part nine hole golf course. It's one of the top nine hole golf courses in the world. Untouched, perfect set of greens. So that's another one. Uh, I'm going to get completely obscure here with another one. This is north of Tijuca. You think Tijuca in Rome is obscure. There's a golf course called Tendara. Oh, th Tendara. that's... Nine holes of Ross, right? Then there's a modern nine, right? There's nine holes of Ross and nine holes by Daffy Duck's <laughs> cousin, <laughs> which is, you know, garbage. But the front nine is stunning. Now, that club has enough money, but they don't want to spend it. Um, I, I went up there from Tijuca. We I was at the 100th anniversary of Tijuca, and we took a day off. I said, I got to go see this Tendara. So the front nine is stunning. Just Everything is right there. I heard it's like crazy uh, bold. Like it's it's yeah. really big in terms of yep. like Ross features, right? Well, some of them are ghost features. It's kind of like going to Wakanda and looking at the Langford Moreau stuff on the side and wishing it were in the center. So uh, you have that kind of um, appearance of, um, you know, kind of a remnant golf course. But it's all there in terms of the native fescue and a, on a sandy site. It's really interesting. Just don't do not look at the back nine. It's like, <laughs> just play the front nine over and over again. Play the front nine twice. That's there's right. there's a there's a golf course. Uh, there's a Langford Moreau. Uh, it was it was called Laporte Country Club. Now it's called like Legacy Hills. The uh, mm -hmm. the front nine is is all just just sitting there. It's your typical you know golf course that you you go to and you're like, oh my god, if they just could fix this up. Now it's right. like ten dollars to play the front nine, and I tell just under no circumstances go to the back nine, play the front nine over and over again, but do not step foot on the back nine. You got like raised ponds, like it's just right. a, a collection of of terribleness that will that will make you wonder why what you're doing over there. Well, West Bend is the same way. Yeah, West Bend. Mm -hmm. and, and then the best one is the Marquette Golf Club because the nine holes of Ross, uh, the nine holes of uh, Langford Moreau are interesting. Yeah, yeah, of course. The whole Gill family. What they did to the to the Upper Midwest is a uh, subject of a you know crime series. But uh, at Marquette Golf Club, that you got to find the nine holes are interspersed, so it's even more of a puzzle. Anyway, so Tendara is another one. Then I got uh, Whitensville and Tijuca, and then my real hero is the hero of my book, Essex County Club north of Boston. It's not a surprise, but it's, it's Ross was living there. He was on site. He lived in a house on the 15th tee. Uh, he handcrafted that thing and it's been restored brilliantly. And it's all there in terms of the wild mounds, the short holes. You got a reservoir in the middle of one. You got these split fairway, massive shifts in the fairway. It is absolutely stunning. That's, that's a golf course in terms of if you want to see a golf course presented the right way. Yeah. That that yeah. is one of the I think the across the country, like one of the uh, just like Hall of Fame presenting golf architecture. Yeah. Yeah. So and then my final one, this is entirely self-serving, but um, who was it? Frank Hannigan said, if you don't have a conflict of interest in the golf industry, you're not taken seriously. So <laughs> uh, we just Tyler Ray and I just finished the restoration of the home of the Donald Ross Society in West Hartford, Connecticut. It's called Wampanoag. 
and we brought it back dead perfect and it's it was always an interesting set of greens uh it's now a fascinating set of of step strategy and alternate and one of the nice things i have to say this about the you know not only are golf courses getting longer but they're getting shorter so we we stretched it in both directions so what used to be a 5500 to 6500 yard golf course is now 4800 yards up front and 7000 in the back so the f- people who play the forward tees can get the same sense of strategy that the people get in the middle and the back. And that's one of the neat things about so many different tees nowadays. You do have a chance to make golf courses more playable, not just easy, but playable and strategic and tactful and, you know, the sort of moving tech ch- chess pieces around. And I think a lot of courses can do this. If the golf course has the original set of plans and has sequences of how it evolved with an architect who's thoughtful and a committee that's patient, I think a lot of these Ross courses can be brought back. I always like to say the best restoration, you bring it back to a condition that it was never in when it started. Because because of the mowing patterns now and the technology and grasses, you can create much more variety and firmness and character and rollout and definition that you could never achieve back in those days because the mowing the mowing heights weren't there. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll make a pitch for Wampanoag entirely self-serving. I, it's uh yeah I think you bring up a great point about restoration I think I, I you know one of the things that's happened is is so much of the focus of restoration has gone on on the the shutdown you know tens of millions of dollar restoration and it doesn't necessarily have to be that especially at at clubs like you can do a modest restoration and for the most part of the restoration you know it's just been the last really, I think 10 years where that's been the focus. If you look at like a lot of the great early restorations, they were done on a budget. They were done. And these are at clubs that could afford a full shutdown. You think of like Shore Acres, Chicago Golf, their restoration. You think about Somerset Hills' restoration over time. Garden City, you know, these are these are clubs that are are among the elite of of clubs across the world that did really great. I mean, Old Town Club would be another example of of a restoration, which did, you know, and they're about to do another one, but they that did these sparkling restoration to even LACC was done in phases. It doesn't have to be a full shutdown for a year and and you know, all the bells and whistles technology into the greens and bunkers like you can do a modest restoration and get unbelievable results and if your infrastructure is is sound and if your bunkers are draining and your irrigation works then you can sort of amend it piecemeal uh, and and get away with that model Um, and then you know just work it in slowly it's almost like you know nobody notices what you're doing but that's only if the fill pads are intact and you can expand them out and you have enough of a nursery. And, you know, it requires some patience uh, and a, some long-term planning. All right, Brad, I, uh, I appreciate you coming on here. Um, obviously appreciate all your work with, uh, with Donald Ross and just golf architecture in general. Um, it's, uh, it's the first, hopefully of, a, of, a, of many conversations about, uh, about Donald Ross. I feel like we can't really capture, his essence in in a, in a short period. This podcast probably needs to be a few parts, but but I appreciate the uh, you coming on and uh, talking about uh, his architecture. I have to say this um, at the risk of sounding like I'm sucking up to you here. 
it's amazing to me when I talk about the history of media, how much people respond to what you guys have done in terms of visual technology and podcasting and contemporary approach to a classical game. And it's, I used to work at Golf Week. I worked at Golf Week for 25 years. And we, you know, we were aware as we were printing that we weren't going to be out around forever. Amazingly, the magazine, thankfully, has survived. But um, what you've done in terms of defining a tasteful new path toward classical journalism is really impressive. And, um, you know, you've had an impact. You've, you've had an impact. I, pr- it's, it's I appreciate it. Pleasure that. to be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, as somebody growing up, you know, this is just the, uh, we might have to cut this because we're just going to lob compliments back to get back and forth. As someone who grew up reading golf week and reading about golf architecture, you obviously were one of the people that I read the most, uh, growing up. So I, uh, I have to, you know, there's, there's definitely some Brad Klein influence in, in what I do. So pretty scary. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brad. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Fat Cork. Uh, Mother's Day is barreling down. All right. I I don't know if you're going to be able to get a bottle of champagne that Fat Cork makes, this great, great champagne. Much like Donald Ross, you know, when he visited sites, this is handcrafted. I think uh, Bradley was kind of talking about um, how he handcrafted every feature at uh, Essex County. Fat Cork provides you with champagne shipped directly to your door that is handcrafted by the best uh, grape growers in France. So he searches it out. These are all independent growers and they're best grapes. So Fat Cork is a wonderful, wonderful Mother's Day gift. Now, you may or may not be able to get the uh, the champagne to your uh, your wife, you know, whether it be your mother or a friend who's a mother, you know, whoever you want to give a mother, nice Mother's Day gift to. Uh, what I will say is a great way to do this. Do the old printout. I'm a procrastinator. I um, I'm known to do the printout. So what you could do is you could do the uh, uh, join their champagne club. They're frequent visitors. They have different levels level levels of it. They have the merrymaker, but join the champagne club. It ships out every quarter, and you could do a nice little printout and give it to them. Um, so, uh, if you do want to do like expedited shipping and get it there quickly, uh, one of the things they will do is the, the promo code for ours is golf. It is free regular shipping. They'll honor your, your free regular shipping for any future order. So if you do the, if you need to do expedited shipping, you can do that. Um, this is really great champagne and, uh, uh, as a gift will make really anybody that that enjoys a little bubbly quite happy it, it is above and beyond um and the customer service is out out of this world so visit fatcork.com it's f a t c o r k.com and use the promo code golf and you'll get free shipping uh there's lots of single bottle uh options that you can do for mother's day but um but yeah join the join the club too it's a great product and great people running the product so Thanks for, to them for the support. And now back to Chris Bowie.
All right, Chris. Um, obviously, a, a what a action packed life Donald Ross had. But I'd love to talk about the beginning here and uh, where did Donald Ross grow up and how did he get into golf? He grew up in Dornoch, which is uh, in the Highlands. Uh, now Edinburgh is north of Moscow along the latitude line and uh, Dornoch is parallel with Norway uh, up way up. So when you think of that, you think of Scotland and the adorable golf courses and everything, but it's pretty Nordic all the way up there. Uh, it was on the coast and it just happened to be one of the finest Lynx courses then and now. And so he grew up in a very, very small town. There was no train there. Didn't have HBO, didn't have anything. So they, um, so obviously, you know, the golf course was right there and he caddied and uh, showed a knack for it. And there was a, uh, a uh, the, like the head of the club there uh, was uh, named John Sutherland. And he was a really well noted um, in golf circles in Britain at the time. And he was a good player. He did architecture. He was, um, he was a, Ross's first role model. He wrote, he dealt, did all kinds of stuff. So all of those guys that I've studied have been Renaissance men, you know, as opposed to us, which specialize in one or two things, you know, those guys were doing all sorts of stuff. So how, how did, um, did, did he, obviously Dornick's going to be brought up a lot, um, with this PGA. And whenever you talk about Donald Ross is brought up, did, did Ross ever, uh, did he, talk or write about uh growing up in Dornick uh and and what what were his kind of um thoughts on on that golf course and and, and yeah he grew there. up in Dornock his family was very religious they went to what was called the free presbyterian church there was no musical instruments allowed uh, austere was the word that one of the guys that knew Ross told me that's the what he got from it. So it was a serious religious stuff and he was a serious religious guy. He just, he didn't wear it on his sleeve. Um, very similar to old Tom Morris in that regard. How, how did they meet old Tom Morris and him? Well, um, so Sutherland uh, decided that Ross should be a pro and uh, Ross originally at age 14 there, you basically took up a trade or, or prepared for college. And his was a trade, which was, he was a woodworker called a joiner, which is w where you fit two different pieces of wood together seamlessly. But he loved the game. He played, he caddied. And Sutherland said, well, this would be a good pro. So he sent him to St. Andrews for a year. Uh, let's see, what year would that have been? like the early 1890s. So he was there with uh, old Tom Morris for about a year in St. Andrews. And they, on Saturday nights, you went to the Kirk or the church and you got dinner and it was kind of music there. It was kind of the thing to do. Um, so they did get to spend quality time there. And I think, well, I'm sure that he absorbed 
uh, old Tom Morris's way of doing things, which he kind of presided over everything. He was involved in, you know, course design, club making, you know, agronomy, uh, and so on and so forth. But also, old Tom Morris was, he was kind of a folk hero in Britain at the time. And he was a working class guy, but the, basically, if you wanted to play golf, you know, and you were from London or whatever, they would send you up to see old Tom Morris. And they, there was, uh, his manner, personal manner was such that even though he was, you know, like a tradesman, he, everybody just treated him with, uh, deference, which was kind of a big deal at the time. And that was definitely what Ross became. And he definitely learned that, uh, from old Tom. I mean, other people as well, but old Tom was a template. Pinehurst was kind of pretty much like the American St. Andrews. You know, you have a bunch of courses there. You have this patriarchal figure who, you know, not only designs the courses, but runs the tournaments and sort of sets the demeanor for people and behavior that wasn't uh, correct would be invited to leave immediately. <laughs> so, um, but also good fun as well. Um, with, with old Tom, I, I, and obviously you made the parallel to Pinehurst as it did out in, you know, we talked earlier about him being, you know, uh, Sutherland being a Renaissance man, uh, Ross kind of became a Renaissance man. Do you um, glean into his life that it, that from Old Tom is where he learned a lot about golf design? That is a good question. He, I mean, he got the rudiments from Old Tom, but and when he got here, he you know, it took a couple of few years before he really got a solid grasp on design, but he did very quickly and, you know, without any tutelage or, you know, there weren't really that many instructional things. So he, I mean, he was actually a genius. I suspected that that wasn't the case when I first started writing the book. I thought, you know, he's probably really bright, maybe brilliant, but he actually was a genius going through all the material that became clear and part of it. And part of the reason why he could do so many courses was, was because he could process information extraordinarily fast. And, uh, and so he learned a lot very quickly and, um, and yeah. And of course, Pinehurst is a perfect place for him, you know, in the, the first decade that he was here, he got there in 1900 by the end of that first decade, he was, he was a masterful designer. Yeah, I'd talk about. Uh, I'd love to hear more about him coming over to America and his early life in America. What that was like, like you know, especially like that early, that first right. year. Uh, well, he uh, what he wrote was that uh, there was a professor from Harvard named Wilson that came over to Dornock to play one summer and he said well you should consider coming to america you know and the money was uh multiple levels better than it was in uh, scotland at the time and so it was, a, it was a good invitation but 
I don't, I'm not sure, you know, it was how firm it was, but anyway, Ross came over 1899. He left from Liverpool. So he got on the boat, which was, it was actually replaced by the Titanic. It was from the same line as that got to America. It didn't go through Ellis Island, went to a different, um, place, but right there in New York. And he took the, that day, he took the train to Boston and got out of, I think it's Union Station there and walked eight miles in the snow to um, the professor's place. Before he walked there, he called him on a telephone, which, I mean, I don't know if he'd ever seen a telephone before. And but sure enough, this <laughs> thing works and somebody's voice comes out of the other end. So... He walked to Cambridge and happily ate what was offered, trying not to appear too ravenous. And the next morning he started at Oakley. And then the end of that first year, I think he sent his mom $3,000 or whatever. And so they named their house Oakley. Um, and the dutiful son. So he, yeah, that's talking about 1899. That first year, he lived in Watertown in a boarding house. When he came over on the, um, they put down your profession on the, uh, you know, when you enter the country, his profession was servant, which was written on there, which was what a golf pro was considered at the time. So how did how did the, the redesign and how did he begin designing golf courses? How did that transition happen? It was, you know, it was a matter of being thrown in. I mean, he'd... Uh, he was familiar with agronomy and, you know, some fundamental, fundamental parts of design. And he spent a lot of time with Sutherland, you know, talking about, Oh, look at this hole, how it goes into that hole. You know, you don't want the same shot over and over. And um, so there had been, you know, some level of knowledge, you know, before that, but then he goes there and it's a tight, piece of property and uh, still is. And so it was basically have at it, you know? And so uh, he did uh, the best that he could with that, which I like courses like that, that, you know, they're sort of formulaic and traditional that are, have their own identity, which is what Oakley had and still has. What, um, so he, he starts there and then how does, does he start to, how does he start to get other jobs? How did this like process happen where he, yeah, well, he, that happens from the Tufts came there. Uh, he, he was a Boston guy himself and he, I think he was a member at Oakley among other courses. And so he needed a guy to come down to his little resort called Pinehurst. So there had been a little bit of stuff in Pinehurst. Basically, they the guess, it wasn't designed as a golf place. It was designed for consumptives, which uh, is tuberculosis. Uh, so they start building the town for these delicate New Englanders to come down to the fresh air of the pines. And uh, and about halfway through building the town, they find out that 
TB is communicable rather than hereditary. So the whole premise for your town is out the window. What are you going to do? And so a guy that lived there in town did a rudimentary nine holes, basically where the, uh, the cradle is now. And then they got a Scott to come in, uh, for, uh, he was there for a year and he left. And then they, they had another guy that was supposed to come in named Harry Varden. Varden had played a exhibition match there, I think March of 1900. And there was a tacit agreement for him to be the pro that autumn, but that didn't, it was in the paper that he would be the guy, but it wasn't. So they got this other guy from Oakley named Donald Ross comes down to Pinehurst. And there's these big, endless, sandy fields that, you know, with a lot of roll or not a great amount of roll to them. A lot of things can be done. Land is endless there. They bought it for a dollar an acre. So he's out there and nobody really knows what's going on as far as design. So the owners, you know, go out there and make us another course. So. Uh, number one course did exist. Um, number two course at Pioneers was built as a breather, a relaxer course. It was, uh, you know, so it would be an easy thing for newcomers to the game originally in 1901. The first nine, it was just nine holes and it went out to beyond where the first, just beyond where the first hole of number two is now and came back up the 18th hole. There were nine, like, you know, 80 yard holes and stuff like that. So that's how number two started, how Donald Ross started there. And then it sort of took off from there. So Pinehurst, obviously being a winter destination, um, had to, it, it, you get the affluent people from all over the Northeast visiting and that, or even the Midwest to extent too. Yeah. And that is what really spurred on, oh, look at this guy here. We need to bring him to our town and, and grow the, grow the you know, th that grew the design business. Yeah, just not just design. He told him where to put the clubhouse. Um, as time went on, he picked out the pros or suggested pros that should go there so that the court, it should be done in the right way. A lot of the people that got those early courses were members of the 10 whistles, which is still there. Uh, it's first golfing society in the United States, 1904. Um, people like Robert Hunter, you know, were, um, members there, uh, Bill phones, uh, William phones. Um, so a lot of those guys, if you look at the early pictures of the 10 whistles and they'll have a list of the people, you'll see that most of them were from, the Northeast and a lot of them had Ross build a course. So they, but they were like social friends as well. So he would talk with them all winter about this is how you run a club. This is, you know, the way it's supposed to be. Um, and that all of that stuff by the end of his career, I would say made him the old Tom Morris of America. I made him the godfather or patriarch of American golf. I would say, cause he ran, tournaments, et cetera, and all sorts of things. And he was a very good player in his, uh, also, yeah. you know? Yeah. He finished the top four in the U S open or top 10, four times 
Um, he was leading the British Open after three rounds, 1910 in St. Andrews. And he had one of his best rounds. It was in an incredible storm. And uh, the storm was so bad that they ended up throwing out all the scores for that day, including his, after he had his heroic round to win his, you know, one chance, as far as I know, at uh, the Open. And he was not pleased by that. Wait, so he would have won, but they threw out. Well, after the third round, he would have gone into the final round leading and he didn't. Okay. What, what would you say, you know, in, in what you dug up writing your book, um, what were the reviews of, of his early courses? I'm fascinated by, you know, and I think we've hit on a few of it, but like, you know, there are a lot of golf architects building golf courses, not a lot, but there were a handful and all of them were very good. But I'm just curious how he became, you know, like you read stuff about, oh, we had to get Donald Ross, the greatest golf architect in the world. And when, you know, and this is in a city with other great golf architects like Philadelphia. So like, I'm just, you know, like what were the early reviews of his early courses and how did this spurn into him becoming a, you know, a larger than life figure in golf? Part of it was PR. He was good at PR. He always had the advertising guys down. Um. I almost put this one part in the book usually, or a lot of times after he built a course, he's like, this is one of the best I've ever designed. This is just fantastic. <laughs> this is so great. I feel like every piece of <laughs> land was <laughs> the greatest land. It was like, seen. it was, uh, you know, there, I had like 15, 20 quotes of him saying that about a course that he just finished. You know, he expects this one to be one of, if not perhaps the finest one ever that he's done. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, he was proud and uh, you probably met people like him reading through it. it, You know, one of those guys that's formidable, uh, successful and, you know, is very friendly. But you get the feeling that, you know, they are a big deal and they they think they're a big deal, too, but they're not going to say it, you know, and which is fine. Um, it's, you know, it was a gravitas is what I'm trying to say. And that played a a role, a big role, not just in him getting more commissions, but one of the things that surprised me that he did was, as I was saying earlier, the role of the club pro was, well, it was working class, you know, and Ross, as far as the role of particularly the, well, both for the touring pro and the club pro. And Walter Hagen, you know, is, is recognized as the guy that mainly turned that for the uh, touring pro. And Ross was the main guy that did that for uh, the club pro. Every club pro should uh <laughs> have a little uh, statue of Ross in the corner because he, he did lift that uh, status and that played into getting commissions as well, because he was held in high regard. His work, you know, was always, uh, some people found it a little challenging, you know, from time to time. I don't think anybody thought he did 
I don't, I don't think there were any accounts that they, you know, he, he bungled it on here or there, which is pretty amazing when you consider how much he was doing. So, you know, the reputation carries on because if you can have all these references of somebody that's totally reliable and you, you'll end up with something you can be proud of. So that's part of it. How was he able to scale his golf architecture business to such great heights in the twenties, you know, in a period where it seemingly was a lot of, you know, handcrafted golf, like how did he build this golf architecture empire? Well, in the twenties, I mean, he built more than two courses a month, every month for 10 consecutive years. Would you consider that a lot? You might, but. He didn't, you know, that was one thing. He also ran Pinehurst Empire. He ran basically the Masters, which was the North-South Open. And, oh, yeah, let's do real estate and let's have a club design company as well because designing two courses a month, every month, is just not quite enough work. So how did he do that? He had, uh, it was also he's cultivating people all the time. If he saw from caddies, street kids to other people, if he saw something, he would um, be a kind of tutor uh, for them. And the ones that he had on his team, uh, such as Irving Johnson, the draftsman, uh, Nelson, who was his right-hand man, he had about five, six like ultra sharp guys, handpicked. They were always, in my, if you met them, they were dressed to the nines. They behaved properly. They knew all this different stuff. So he had a very efficient um, team, ultra efficient team. And his part was his, you know, the brilliance with design, you know, we're going to have routing that goes here, there, and everywhere, and this is how it's going to end up. But the genius part, because I kept trying to figure out, there's a film clip of him at Aronomy, one of the few film clips. And I saw it, I remember when I first saw it, about halfway through writing the book, and I hadn't expected to see any film of the guy. So that was, you know, kind of, wow. But there was something in the film that I couldn't quite put my finger on, and I didn't realize it till after I was reading a letter that he wrote to Kanawango. In Pennsylvania. And basically, it was an off-the-cuff uh, first-draft letter that went into extraordinary detail about the golf course that they were doing. And this is what kind of seed you want for this area. And this is where you can get it. You can get it from this guy in Boston, or you could go to New York. The guy in New York is cheaper, but the one in Boston is better. Actually, I would go with that guy. And you come here and you put it in particularly on this hole and everything. And maybe the T should be angled 10 degrees to the left. And maybe you should elevate the third. You know, it's like, the stuff that you might think of over the course of a couple of months or something, his thought patterns or his tempo of thought was like a Maserati compared to the rest of us in Hondas. And that's, you know, I could tell from the film clips because he's like this, 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 but it's like definitive. It's like something that's thought out. He could think things out very quickly. And that's how it ended up you know, that he could do that many courses, which is, that puzzled me at first, I got to tell you. 
it's un- it's unbelievable and i think that like lend itself like uh you know obviously uh you know there's lots of talk of him riding trains designing golf courses off of uh top- topo maps and in you know sending his notes he was extraordinarily efficient obviously you have to be to do everything he did and you know it's uh as you said uh, you know a genius um it it had to be there's the only yeah. way you could possibly like you wonder what he would have done in this era right is like would he have been one of because he built a business in a really like you know you think about like golf architecture and and it's it's a it's a practice that people don't feel can be scaled and he was the one person that was able to scale it really really well like you know um in in comparison you know i think there's been some scale in the in the era after him, like T- Robert Trent Jones and Tom Fazio. But I think that Ross courses and maybe, you know, some of his constraints with technology might've saved Donald Ross from, you know, manipulating land and such, but he was really the only person in, in this, you know, entire uh, history of golf design that was able to scale the business and, and, and put out a prolific number of very good golf courses. Um, what about Donald Ross's life? I guess, you know, we've hit on, you know, his just, you know, renaissance man, you know, ability to to run all these businesses. What about his life? Uh, you know, and it could be a really small or a or a big anecdote. It, you know, feel free to have it be something obscure. What do you find most interesting? Uh, well, I, 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 it surprised me that, you know, if you like have a really close look at any human being you're you know usually you know if you're looking that hard you know then you're usually going to be like well you know maybe i didn't need to know that or whatever and you know they're still a great person whatever in other words people have foibles but he was you know he had a kind of a temper maybe a little bit full of himself at times a little bit, not much. Uh, and understandably so. I mean, if you're designing Seminole and Aronimink and all of these things, you have a right to be kind of proud of yourself, right? So I, that wasn't, but the thing that uh, surprised me was there was a enormous integrity. You know, I, I didn't, he didn't want his name on something second rate. Uh, he really wanted to do things the right way. That, a lot of that was from the early religious stuff and his family were like, you know, you better, it was really ingrained to do things the right way. And he would never say it, but I think part of his design stuff, I think that he thought if golf is a, golf makes you a better person is what I believe that he thought. And that if you get a person doing that, that's going to blend over into other aspects of life and also a town, you know, you got a golf course in a town that, you know, as opposed to one that didn't, it's sort of a collecting place and you sort of have to learn how to behave properly. What, what would you say, uh, you know, kind of closing up here, you know, obviously there's a lot to choose from. What are your five favorite courses that Ross, uh, Ross did that you've played? Gosh, um, Mid Pines, Glen Falls, 
Um, maybe playing field. Let me think here for a second. Overhills <laughs> and Seminole. So um, nice. Yeah. It's uh, it was a good list. There's there's a lot to choose from. That's the thing. That's the only second time I've done a list. I, I I'm uh, my brain just doesn't think that way, you know. So, but chances are, if you get out there on a Ross course, you're gonna you're gonna have a good time, depending on how well or poorly it's been maintained. But. Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you for uh, coming on and uh, talking about a little bit about the life. Uh, you know, people want to know more about the life. They can uh, they could buy their buy your book. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. I talk, I really appreciate you inviting me, and I appreciate what you do for the game. I think you're doing good things. Thank thanks, Chris. Look looking forward to meeting you uh, when when I get down there next time. Yeah, absolutely. Give me a shout. We'll go out to Southern Pines or wherever you like. You'll get a kick out of it. I promise. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Friday Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Meg Atkins. Meg is back. Uh, Matt's on vacation. So this is Meg just filling in in her old podcast uh, production role. Thank you, Meg. Um, as a reminder, we've got new Pro Shop merchandise. Uh, Cameron put together a, uh, a fun little PGA logo with uh, Donald Ross's face on top of an acorn. And one other thing, we're, we're humming with Club TFE uh, for the for the PGA. We're going to release a uh, one thing about every hole at uh, at Oak Hill video. So if you want a little bit more depth on Oak Hill, uh, what my favorite feature is on each hole at Oak Hill. So if you're looking for more Oak Hill content, I think we're also going to have an architect roundtable about Donald Ross. So that will be up as well. Um, so, if, you know, a bunch more Ross content, much more Oak Hill content will be available in Club TFE. And that's a membership. It's $120 for the year. All the money uh, really goes back into our editorial you know, budget and helps us do more cool stuff. Um, that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to produce more great content and uh, really appreciate all the support from everybody that's joined already. Uh, if you haven't, check it out i think it's uh i think we're we're doing a good job delivering value for the 120 dollars a year so thank you we'll be back uh on sunday i think sunday we'll release uh made our pga championship preview podcast um we have ryan lavner coming on excited to talk with ryan and uh yeah we'll be back and uh thank you guys for listening